0: When in ancient days, heaven was separated from earth. When boundaries were laid out and borders were fixed. When boundary stones were placed and inscribed with names. When dikes and canals were purified. When wells were dug straight down. When the bed of the Euphrates, the plenteous river of Unug, was opened up. When the offices of En and King were famously exercised at Unug. When the scepter and staff of Kulaba were held high in battle. In battle, in Nana's game, when they black-headed were blessed with long life in their settled ways, when they presented the mountain goats with pounding hoofs and the mountain stags beautiful with their antlers to Enmerkar, son of Utu. Now, at that time, the king set his mace towards the city. Enmerkar, son of Utu, prepared an expedition against Arata, the mountain of the holy divine powers.
1: we are listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest.
0: Kelton, uh, one of the
1: pounding hooves. And we're listening to Lugalbanda in the Mountain Cave. This is a Sumerian text written around 2000 BCE. Lugalbanda is the successor of Enmerkar, but he's not the king yet in the story. His story is embedded in the tradition of military campaigns led by Unug against a legendary Iranian city of Arata. I don't think this text makes it clear, but he is definitely the father of Gilgamesh.
0: Gotcha, and gilgamesh having definitely starting off in the epic as a very well adjusted you <laughs> no, exactly like clearly <laughs> l- clearly lugubanda really uh, you know instilled upon gilgamesh all the right properties of a ruler you no, know, exactly. like, you
1: know. Yeah. it doesn't uh, tell us about lugubanda's parenting techniques but it does show us it does show us yeah yeah
0: yeah <laughs> isn't gilgamesh's mom like uh, the cow god
1: mhm um, yeah
0: yeah yeah did any of that that action today we're going to get into that no actually
1: Man on
0: cow God action
1: (laughs) No But in One of the earliest Pieces of literature Ever produced Mm -hmm. Like one of those Is a poem about Lugubanda and Nensung like their marriage. Oh, really? And like in the poem, you know, it's broken. Like we we were missing the beginning and end. But at, like you know, they have their whole marriage thing, and then they come back, and then Lugalbanda comes back to the court of Unug, and the king is the end is like, hey, what did you bring me back as tribute when you went to the eastern mountains? So we know that the like legendary context for the Aratamets already existed in like 2500 BC. Oh, really? Okay. That they were written in the 21st century.
0: Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So this is after the written down version is. After 400 years of existing. At, at least. least, yeah. That's
1: fun. Lugulbanda, which is Sumerian for king of Mexican polka. <laughs> 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 That's... So these four myths that we're looking at are all part of a cycle of Unug about a series of military campaigns about Arata. <laughs> Arata considers
0: it less of a cycle and more of just like a straight line of them bringing shit to Arata. It's yeah, like, exactly. hey, give us your stuff. <laughs> uh, no, then a straight line from all their stuff going back. <laughs> exactly. Like if you have four generations of like, you know, epic warfare, it would suck to be the place you have this like generations of epic warfare. About. Mm-hmm. Seems like, because, you know, in every myth, they have to be the losing side because the protagonist, the king has to prevail. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, he was going to set off to destroy the rebel land. The lord began a mobilization of his city. The herald made the horn signal sound in all the land. Now levied, Unug took the field with the wise king. Indeed levied, Kulaba followed Enmerkar. Unug's levy was a flood. Kulaba's levy was a clouded sky. As they covered the ground like heavy fog, the dense dust whirled up by them reached up to heaven. As if to rooks on the best seed, Rising up, he called to the people. Each one gave his fellow the sign. Their king went at their head to go at the vanguard of the army. So I don't I I do love these myths in that, like, you know, like, it's fun to see, like, humanity, like, just get a hold of metaphor. Mm -hmm. You know? This thing is like this other thing. Mm -hmm. It, it, It is fun. I don't know. Like, it's really cool.
1: Well, it's funny because, like, there's a couple different layers to these. On the one hand, there would have been a poetic tradition going back probably to the beginning of time.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, And then there's also the scribal tradition where sometimes they incorporate like well known sayings in the list of sayings that they produce as like student scribes. Huh. Um you know, they you know, they copy down the you know, their versions like, Count your chickens before they hatch and you know all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And sometimes in these myths, you know, because they're scribes producing these texts, you know, sometimes they'll just like don't be foolish, Gilgamesh, remember, don't count your chickens before they hatch or whatever. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Bring um, it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is I don't know, it is just interesting to read these and know that there is in its form, without any of the context, uh, it reads, and then it is fun to think of, like, you know, even the most studied person right now does not understand all of the context. Well,
1: exactly. Because, like, the poetic tradition necessarily is, like, the thing that exists outside of the written tradition.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. No. This is supposed to make the audience recall the poetic tradition that they all just kind of know. Right. But we don't. Right. Aw. Right. So I'm, I'm getting that these, have, this is basically the, like, being the guy at the table who doesn't know the inside joke, having people tell the inside joke. Mm-hmm. Like, again, you can follow the conversation, but you're not really.
1: Well, and there's some, like, some people theorize that the actual text was not meant to be read verbatim, but just kind of like the cliff notes of what, you know, whoever's performing the epic would then elaborate on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because there are a few moments... I
0: mean, obviously, I don't know how, how it, the translation... But there are a few moments that I've noticed a lot where they, like, do a lot of repetition. Right. Uh, you know, like... Uh, and well, the well. lions were big. And the elephants were big, you know.
1: The, yeah, that also comes through the, the whole, like, being performed thing. Just like, in case you didn't hear that in the back... Uh, well, but, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> He went to one mountain, big. then he went to two mountains. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they set off towards the mountains and marched for seven days. Then we get a description of a character who might be and markar king of Unug.
0: Their ruler, riding on a storm, Utu's son... The good, bright metal, stepped down from heaven to the great earth. His head shines with brilliance. The barbed arrows flash past him like lightning. At his side, the bronze-pointed axe of his emblem shines for him. He strides forward, keenly with the pointed axe, like a dog set on consuming a corpse. Holy yeah, that is some imagery right. Like a dog Set on consuming A corpse Yep That's he- I mean like <laughs> Was there some context I'm missing there Because that is It just feels like A stark contrast To like you know
1: Previous summer, it might be Emmerkar. I'm assuming it's Emmerkar because it says Utu son. It might also be a demigod or some other. God. Some other
0: Utu son. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's just, it's just describing because you know you got like the good bright metal, you know, mm-hmm. flash past on like lightning, pointed axe, and shines for him. So I'm getting like a very shiny heroic guy, and yeah. then like describing him as a dog set on consuming a corpse mm-hmm. is a bit of a you know, it, it, it is a bit of a contrast in imagery.
1: Yeah, Well oh, I mean, both of those are, like I think this whole passage has very clear parallels in the Iliad. Huge hero covered with shining bright metal, just like, oh, you know, invincible in battle, and just like, also animalistic in his violence.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Huh. A shiny hungry dog eating (laughs) a dead guy. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm sure, like, I guess the more savage side of dogs probably has a lot of symbolic meaning for the birth of human civilization, you know, like, Mm. hey, remember that wild animal we turned into something that isn't wild, but how sometimes it goes back to being wild? It's us. No, no, exactly. All right, yeah, okay, yeah. I guess, yeah, dogs meant a lot of different things than they do in t- the 2020s. Right. <laughs> look at my inbred, distri- <laughs> look at my unnatural, de- look at my pug. Yeah,
1: like, <laughs> so Enricar has a few elite heroes, similar to King Arthur's Knights, Charlemagne's Paladins, and David's Mighty Men.
0: I'm sorry, no, I just I just love, I just have always loved David's Mighty Men. Yes, yes, I mean, I've never not found it funny. Right. <laughs> Blow the horn and summon my mighty men! Yeah. Uh, that's, that would be such a good, like, montage of all the mighty men being summoned, like, what they're all doing. Yes. You know, one of them is bench pressing, like, two kegs of beer, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, like, covering his eyes and, like, throwing darts and, like, impressing, like, several like bartenders you know yeah, like yeah. Oh. one of them's like reading shirtless on the side of a mountain just, mighty men <laughs> sorry go on i just got distracted by the funniest phrase sounds like a village people spin off I, yes, I, I was about to go there
1: <laughs> one of these warriors is lugal banda
0: at that time there were seven the goddess irash had born these seven the wild cow had nourished them with milk they were heroes living in sumer they were princely in their prime they had been brought up eating at the god An's table these seven were the overseers for those that are subordinate to overseers He was a boss to all the guys who he employed.
1: (laughs) As you can see, everything is about labor organization.
0: These seven were the overseers for all those that were subordinate to overseers, were the generals for those that are subordinate to generals. They stood at the service of the Lord as his elite troops. Lugalbanda, the eighth of them, was washed in water. In awed silence, he went forward. He marched with the troops when they had covered half the way covered half the way a sickness befell him there head sickness befell him he jerked like a snake dragged by its head with a reed his mouth bit the dust like a gazelle caught in a snare no longer could his hands return the hand grip no longer could he lift his feet high neither king nor contingents could help him in the great mountain crowded together like a dust cloud over the ground they said Let him bring him to Unug." Bring, bring him. Let him bring him to, yeah, let, let, let him bring him to But they did not know how they could bring him, as his teeth chattered in the cold places of the mountain. They brought him to a warm place
1: there. So because they can't heal him and because they can't bring him back to Unug, they prepare a feast for him that is meant to mirror funeral offerings. Ooh, leaving him to die. So what it says, as if laying a table for the holy place, the valued place, it's referring to the underworld. So here Lugulbanda undergoes a full symbolic death.
0: Quite like getting left in a cave with all of your bro's meats. Yep. Meats and meads. Ah, yeah. oh, thanks, guy. Like me and my hospital. But oh, thanks, guy. I'm like, I have like a whole pig. Yeah. Like
1: a... These are for when I get better, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they made him an arbor like a bird's nest. Gave him dates figs, and various sorts of cheese. They put sweet meats suitable for the sick to eat, and baskets of dates, and they made him a home. They set out for him the various fats of the cow pen. The sheep's fold fresh cheese, butter, directly in front of the table. They arranged for him beer for drinking, mixed with date syrup and rolls with butter. Provisions poured into leather buckets, provisions all put into leather bags, his brother and friends, like a boat unloading from the harvest place, placed stores by his head in the mountain cave. Dark beer, alcoholic drink, light emmer beer, wine for drinking which is pleasant to the taste, they distributed by his head in the mountain cave as on a stand for water skins. They prepared for him incense resin, aromatic resin, ligidba resin, and first-class resin on pot stands in the deep hole. They suspended them by his head in the mountain cave. They pushed into place at his head his axe, whose metal was ten, imported from the Zubai mountain. They wrapped up by his chest his dagger of iron, imported from the Gig mountain. His eyes irrigation ditches because they are flooding with water. Holy Lugalbanda kept open, directed towards This, the outer door of his lips, overflowing like holy Utu, he did not open to his brothers. When they lifted his neck, there was no breath there any longer. His brothers, his friends, took counsel with one another.
1: If our brother rises like Utu from bed, then the god who has smitten him will step aside. And when he eats this food, when he drinks this, will make his feet stable. May he bring him over the high places of the mountains to brick-built Kulaba. But if Utu calls our brother to the holy place, the valued place, the health of his limbs will leave him. Then it will be up to us when we come back from Urata, to bring our brother's body to brick-built Kulava.
0: An axe of ten?
1: Yeah. I mean
0: that just like I like doing like a full swing. Like maximum strength that just comes out and it's like kind of like, poonk yeah. like, It doesn't matter how strong you are, you can't kill a guy with a wiffle ball bat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I smack him off the head with my accent. The guy's a perfect imprint of, <laughs> <laughs> of your head on the inside of the blade. It's like, yeah, it's a perfect yeah. indentation. <laughs> <laughs> silhouette. Yeah. yeah, it's a silhouette. Yeah, you can put, that,
0: you can put it on a coin, basically. <laughs> I mean it is very funny to think of just like, you know, like eight warriors with ten axes just like taking twenty minutes to beat a dude to death with them I'm now thinking of you know, like like a bunch of mobsters like, Yeah, hey, it would be a shame if something were to happen to your store. They're all holding wiffle ball bats, yeah, exactly. you know.
1: You know, tin was what you allowed with copper to make bronze. Yeah, yeah make yeah. copper much more strong. It's very funny to think if that's what makes copper stronger. What if we had a weapon that was made of the ultimate strong metal? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. With his axe made of
0: wadded up aluminum foil, <laughs> made of that big foam that cosplayers use. Yep. <laughs> you pull your axe, it makes like the wobbly noise of the wind. Like the dispersed holy cows of Nana, as with a breeding bull when in his old age they have left him behind in the cattle pit. His brothers and friends abandoned holy Banda in the mountain cave. And with repeated tears and moaning, with tears, with lamentation, with grief and weeping, Banda's older brothers set off into the mountain.
1: So we'll see how this works out for him. But first, I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest. Bella. So this episode will be on feasts during the late Uruk. We're going to start off by talking about the social importance of feasts. Then we're going to look at livestock, because for the first time, we have administrative texts relating to livestock, now that they've invented text. We'll also take a closer look at the interaction between temples, herders, and animals. Then we'll look at the institutional aspect of feasting. We'll look at meat distribution, the kitchens where they prepared food, and of course, beveled rim bowls, finally. Then we have some evidence that they played music at feasts, so we'll talk about music. So, since the beginning of time, if you need to make friends, a great way to do that is to make a bunch of food and invite them all to dinner. We've looked at lots of examples, for example, beer and gazelle meat at Göbekli Tepe, fancy drinking vessels at Ein-el-Kerk, and fancy pottery for serving food at basically every site since the pottery Neolithic. In later periods, we have lots of art of banqueting scenes throughout Mesopotamian history. We can look at the standard of Ur, made around 2500 BCE, where the peace side depicts a banqueting scene with musicians, and of course, large institutional kitchens. Or at least as old as the late Calcolithic in northern Mesopotamia. At Telbruck, they had big kitchens where they processed literal tons of meat. This trend will continue in southern Mesopotamia. Of course, there are different types of feasts. You can think of the temple household inviting a large group of guests. It feeds them food they would never be able to eat on their own. Cattle, of course, are expensive to raise, but the temple can't afford that. This is an unequal exchange. The temple gives you more than you could ever produce, and now you owe the temple the other half of that favor, which you're probably going to spend the rest of your life paying off in offerings to the god. In episode 15, we talk about work feasts essentially where a chief throws you a feast and you're obligated to do work for that chief. We can think of the Uruk period as the ultimate endpoint of the concept of a work feast. So, you know, you're enslaved for the entire period that your body is physically able to work, and in return, you get the minimum amount of daily rations required to keep you alive. Peasants would be in a similar situation, but probably less severe. They were probably working on the same projects and maybe even given the exact same rations. Either way, when you're spending all day working with the same people, and then you eat together with the same people, That's a good way to develop a collective identity.
2: Is this construction more infrastructure, or is it... Kind of more in the Egyptian style, where it's uh, honoring the rulers. I'd assume infrastructure, but you never know.
1: Yeah, yes and yes. You know, canals are probably the most salient and probably the most common form of labor. But, you know, especially the late Uruk period is when they're building these big, you know, temple platforms and the temples and storage facilities and gardens and things like that. So there are construction projects that we'd be familiar with, like the pyramids.
2: I'm always surprised, actually, looking at this period and this region. You do see monumental architecture, which just isn't repeated for hundreds, maybe even a thousand years.
1: But another aspect of these chiefly feasts is not only the regular people who have to do work for that chief, but it also serves as a venue for the chief to give fancy gifts to their followers or to other chiefs. So it's not all about the unequal exchange between the leader and common people. It can also be about generosity and hospitality between elites. So we can think of the extension of dinner rules between households to encompass temple households and other types of important people in society. So, of course, there are lots of benefits to being friendly with the temple. They have all the best food, beer, wine, etc.
2: And when we say beer, that's the kind of porridge beer, right, with a very low alcohol content. Yeah,
1: It's very pulpy. Uh, it is room temperature, and it's primarily given for nutritional purposes.
2: I almost want to try it. (laughs) I don't know why.
1: I've heard, because, you know, a while ago they found the yeast from Egyptian beer and made it into beer and tasted it. Oh,
2: yeah, I remember that. Apparently
1: the people who actually tried it said it was god-awful, which doesn't surprise (laughs) me. (laughs) No, it doesn't sound great. It's it's an acquired taste. I mean, cold beer in the present is also an acquired taste. It just takes some more acquiring. I
2: actually don't like beer very much, so I don't know why I want to try this pulpy mess, but maybe, (laughs) maybe that's what I'm missing.
1: And like I mentioned, feasting would also be a way to reinforce the relationships between elites. So we could think of temple office parties or temple feasts to which a specific group of the public is invited, which would, of course, be an honor and would set that group of people apart from most other people in the city. And it's also likely that these temples were venues for feasts, not primarily organized by the temple. We don't exactly know the relationship of these temples to the public as far as, you know, weddings and funerals went. But, at least based on modern parallels, it wouldn't be too surprising to see a wedding ceremony or a funeral ceremony conducted through the temple and catered by the temple, if you will. And almost certainly, the gods are involved in this feasting. So throughout Mesopotamian history, we see sacrifices to the gods. Usually the way sacrifices work is people get to eat the meat afterwards. It's not always the case. So, possibly when people are invited to a feast at the temple, the generosity they originally owe the host, they instead owe to the god of the temple, because of course the temple is a god's house.
2: Uh, I think we have a tendency, looking back at ancient religion, to assume that the elites, especially, were aware that they were just involved in some big sham that was perpetuating the, the control structure. And you see this idea a lot in Roman religion, where you get Cicero talking about how all his priesthoods are shams, basically, and the diviners are just not doing anything real. It's just all made up. And we think, oh, so all the elites were like Cicero and they had this healthy skepticism of the religion and they were aware they were using it for these nefarious purposes. But I, I don't think that's true. I think for some people it was definitely, you know, a big part of their lives. They really believed in it. It was really important to them. I think we have the tendency to think that the elites just were going along with it because it was convenient for them, but there was no actual feeling about it.
1: No, Yeah, it is a fun part. Yeah, prejudice of modern secular academics that they assume that the elites are all intelligent cynical secular people cynically manipulating <laughs> the, the the commoners and the commoners all believe it for real yeah that that is something that i am interested in and i don't know if there's any way to really study is like well i mean a how much do they think was fact versus legend and b what were the terms on you know because like obviously they don't have a modern you know 21st century western idea of what is secular and what is religious and what is legend and so on so yeah
2: it's much more mixed up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in the Roman period, which again I'm going to keep going back to because that's the only one I've studied the religion of. It's really difficult because we have a lot of sources, but they don't really talk about the kind of lived experience of religion. You get about the rituals. You get people talking about the origin of the rituals, what's involved in the rituals, and even that that we don't have much of it. We we maybe have Ovid in the Fasti talking about it, but we just don't have really any places where people are talking about what religion means to them in their everyday life. We kind of get some from uh, Elias Aristides' Sacred Tales. And it's such an important work because it's a personal experience. And the same with Palsanius going on his journey of Greece and experiencing all these kind of religious rituals. But that's so rare. And that's from the Roman period where we just have so many texts. So kind of going back to, to this period, we don't even have fundamental so how are we meant to know what their actual feelings were
1: exactly well and i think it's it's interesting because you know it's for the greek and roman period we have text written by regular people that aren't on the payroll of religious institutions creating text to glorify the religious institution at the moment in the present because i mean that's all yeah. we have for mesopotamian religion yeah you know that doesn't even tell us what people believed at that time. It just tells us what tells us what the temple was writing down.
2: Yeah, finding out what people actually believed is difficult. And even if you have a source that says, well, I believe this and I believe this, then mm. maybe that person's exceptional because after all, they were writing it down in the first place. Right. true. <laughs> you just can't extrapolate it to the general population at all. So yeah, it's an interesting problem, but it can be quite frustrating because in reality, you can't make much headway at all.
1: So moving to livestock, these early states of Mesopotamia were agrarian and pastoral. Temples managed large herds. Again, if they had a huge army of workers, they could herd animals on a very large scale, You know, send a certain group of animals out with a certain shepherd to wander around through the pastures and then come back at a particular time of year so the animals could be sheared or cold or whatever. And of course, the temple having access to these huge amounts of wealth means that they can participate in elite networks where they're exchanging high-value goods, which can include animals. All this means that the people running these temples can use all of this wealth to build authority and project power in places where power didn't used to exist in society. As during the Neolithic, they have the same four most important species, sheep, goats, pigs, and cattle. They also had water buffalo. We've actually found depictions of water buffalo from as early as the Ubaid period. So starting with sheep... They had several breeds of sheep in Uruk Mesopotamia. All of them were smaller than modern sheep, and they also would have produced less wool, so there's somewhere between wild sheep and modern domestic sheep. One text lists numbers of male and female sheep with the name and profession of the herder. The second column is a list of male and female lambs born that year, each lamb being notated with a sign for yearling or first year. There's an object called the alabaster mold. This is an engraved model feeding trough, 11 by 38 centimeters. It depicts rams and ewes proceeding towards a sheepfold and lambs trying to leave. The reed bundle standards depicted on it are a later symbol of the goddess Inanna, so this might depict a feeding ritual relating to Inanna. A 2020 article by Catherine Grossman and Tate Paulette points out that sheep and goats were not just considered movable property, quote, They were valued as producers, products, divine conduits, signs of submission, high-dollar trade goods, potent symbols of care and abundance, extravagant gifts, and ritual offerings par excellence, end quote. The Sumerian word, usduha, combining the words for goats, sheep, and many, referred to herds of sheep and goats. The longer phrase is us udu khia. So we back in episode 13. We talked about two types of financial systems in pre-modern economies, staple and wealth economies. Staple economies are based on low-value, locally produced subsistence goods. So, you know, grain would be the primary example, but of course, livestock and clothing would also qualify because these are all produced on a small scale for the use of the people producing them. Alternately, wealth systems rely on exchange of high-value goods, often transported long distances. So sheep are both of these. They're used for subsistence, meat and milk. Wool has all sorts of everyday household uses, and sheep are produced locally everywhere, but they can also travel long distances with you. Wool can be worked into labor-intensive textiles, which of course are high-value exchange goods. And of course, sheep themselves can be a unit of elite exchange, especially specific breeds of sheep. So increasingly, we will see sheep, goats, and grain come under institutional control. In later periods, we have lots and lots of sheep. In the kingdom of Lagash, around 2400 BCE, we see 75,000 sheep recorded. In Ur, around 2100 BCE, we see 320,000 sheep recorded. And estimates of the amount of sheep owned by the Middle Bronze Age kingdom of Ebla range between one and two million. For reference, in Iraq in 2012 CE, there were nine million goats and sheep total. So, during the Uruk period in Unug, about 60% of animal bones came from sheep and goat, and 40% came from cattle. Pigs were negligible, mostly being raised in rural households. By the early 2000s, sheep and goat will make up 98% of all animal bones within Unug. So, of course, the Uruk is in the middle of a process of increasing industrialization of wool. Overall, between about 4500 and 2500 BCE, the percentage of sites dominated by sheep and goats is constant over time. It stays around 57%, although we see significant diversity between sites which might indicate that even as particular sites specialized in different livestock, overall the entire economy, you know the entire exchange network of the entire society basically use the same percentage of these different animals. So we can kind of think of sheep as an incipient form of state capital. So as with grain, you do have to shear sheep every year. And we talked earlier about how the fact that grain is annual and it grows above the ground means that it's harder to hide from state authority, which makes it very easy to administer from the state's point of view. The same is true with sheep, They grow wool on an annual basis, and that produces a quantifiable amount of a raw material that can be taxed or used as necessary. With proper culling and no bad luck, herds can grow around 10% annually. And unlike grain, the less you cull them, in other words, the less you harvest, the more you have later. So, you know, people managing temple herds were required to turn over a certain percentage of the milk fat produced by those herds back to the temple, and this amount they had to pay back varied by animal. So a kisim was a container for liquid holding one to two liters. And shepherds were expected to pay back one kisim for every 15 to 30 ewes. So this is only 10 to 20% of the amount of dairy fat required from goat herds, who had to turn over one kisim per three goats, even though goats only produce 50% more milk. So maybe what's happening is that the temple is rewarding shepherds for raising a more economically valuable animal. Because, of course, they both produce milk and they both produce fiber, but sheep fiber, wool, is much more economically valuable Especially to the temple, which controls a vast army of laborers who can weave it into more valuable textiles.
2: So it was kind of subsidized in some ways. Mm-hmm. Cheap wearing.
1: Really. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sheep are in many ways the archetypal livestock animal of Sumer, especially because there is such a you know big, important textile industry there. It's a yeah. you know major export industry. And of course, you know, the thing about dairy is that there's no refrigeration. So anything you do with dairy has a time limit on it. And unless you turn it into cheese or butter immediately, you know, it's going to go bad.
2: Sure. If you're producing textiles, you're essentially uh, getting silver in the long run. Whereas dairy, yeah, it's um, not so good for long-term prospects.
1: Moving to pigs. We have two seals depicting boars. One shows a lion flanked by wild boars. Another shows a ruler and two dogs confronting two boars. They're surrounded by reeds and holding punting poles, so this is probably a scene happening in the marshes. We have no domestic pigs depicted in seals, but skeletons and texts shows us that there were lots of pigs in the Uruk economy, and temples were heavily involved in pig raising. One archaic text around 3000 BCE, so the gemed at period technically, not the Uruk period, records a herd of 95 pigs counted in the sexagesimal system that we talked about in the last episode. They're divided by age, Two groups of adults are assigned to temple units in Unug, and a third group are juveniles. Other texts record inspections of sacrificial animals. The sign for a sacrificial animal is a pictograph of a flayed carcass. As we will see, this meat was probably divided up for temple distributions to be paid out either in feasts or in monthly rations. The texts have three age designations for pigs. There's a piglet, or a yearling. There's a two- to three-year-old young pig. And breeding hogs, which were, of course, big enough to slaughter. Another archaic text from the same period has 56 individual entries. Each contains the sign for a pig, which is shoe bore. It's written the same as the sign for a boar, except the one for a domestic pig has no bristles on its neck. And these pigs are qualified by their color being reddish, white, black, and quote-unquote cow. Speaking of which, cattle, of course, have been used for meat and leather and milk for millennia at this point.
2: At this point, there was probably no separation of the cows, right, for different purposes. So nowadays, obviously, we have milk cows and meat cows. But um, I'm assuming then there just wasn't enough genetic difference between them. So they kind of did a, a bit of everything.
1: I'm not sure. We we know there were several different breeds of sheep. So it's probably not unlikely that they had different.
2: Oh, so they might have had. Yeah.
1: Okay. They had different breeds of cow, but I don't know.
2: I guess that might have been done along sex lines, where you had the female, well, or cows. <laughs> That's already a word for it. Where you had cows uh, providing the milk, and then maybe the, the bulls were taken for meat or, or leather. Right, right,
1: right. Pottery is older than the Ubaid occupation, and when you process milk in pottery, you break down some of the lactose and make it digestible. But of course, their most important trait in this agricultural economy is pulling plows. This is, of course, extremely strenuous, so you have to feed these cows cereals, which are more calorically dense than grass. But once you do, the amount of land that you could till with a cattle-pulled plow makes it worth it. We know that cattle rentals were common by the 2000s BCE, so they may be happening by the 3000s. The fact that they're expensive to maintain and the huge amount of productivity that they produce for you is one of the factors leading to increasing social stratification, as we talked about back in episode 4. Bulls were mainstays of Uruk iconography, along with lions and leopards. Later on, we'll see lots of bull similes in literature. Of course, the bull of heaven is important in the Gilgamesh epic. Like I mentioned, cattle herders were required to deliver to the temple a certain amount of the dairy fat from their herds. They had to turn over somewhere between one-fourth to one-half of the total amount of dairy fat produced, which worked out to between two and five liters a year. And bigger cattle herds grazing near rivers and the ocean will cause more erosion. You know, now that there's no grass roots to keep the soil in place, it'll wash into the rivers. Over time, this might deplete the grasslands, which will increase the need for fodder produced agriculturally rather than wild grass. Like I said, if they're pulling plows, they already need agriculture to produce fodder. So this will be part of the process driving the end of the Uruk period, as they have increasingly intensive needs for agriculture, as their soil is becoming saltier and the climate is getting drier.
2: So big cattle herds putting the whole system under pressure, essentially. Right.
1: Right. So Susan Pollock's 2012 article is a study on commensality, in other words, eating together with groups. We see two distinct contexts for commensality in southern Mesopotamia domestic, and institutional. So the majority of this episode is about institutional commensality. That's when you're eating with other people, but the food is provided by these major temples and or, you know, large state institutions. But we're going to start by looking at domestic commensality. In other words, eating at home with members of your family and or your extended household. This is, of course, the kind of cooking that has existed as long as humans have existed and will continue long after these institutions and these cities fade into dust. During the Ubaid period, hards, cooking pots, and grinding tools are all found in the center hall of tripartite domestic buildings. So people were probably cooking and eating together with their extended family in their big extended family house. Of course, people are going to keep eating in their homes throughout the Ubaid and the Uruk. As I mentioned, their staple crop is barley, which is used to make beer, bread, porridge, and sometimes animal fodder. Barley being the cheapest of the grains. I already mentioned their crops. Peas, chickpeas, lentils, fava beans, pistachios, almonds, figs, dates, apples, apricots. Also vegetables like lettuce, onions, cucumbers, and turnips. Plus whatever else you could grow in your garden. Gardens, of course, are a small area of land farmed intensively. As opposed to a field, which is a large area farmed extensively. You can grow a wide variety of crops in gardens, you know, fruits, vegetables, herbs, and so on. Gardens were probably ubiquitous and the source of the biggest variety of different types of plants for most people. They're most possible at heavily watered areas, which is good because there's a lot of heavily watered areas in the alluvium. Obviously, people could catch their own fish. In any city or town in the south, you could find a temple with people bringing it fish. It's unclear if there were fish merchants who traded with individuals. Of course, we are in a pre-monetary economy, but there might be some kind of system of exchanging tokens for amounts of future harvest or whatever.
2: So does that mean that the fish were a lot more plentiful in the diet than meat? Right.
1: Lots of rural households raised pigs primarily for meat. Remember, pigs can give birth to large litters several times a year, which means they might be able to produce up to 30 piglets a year compared to one new animal per year for sheep and cattle. Like with fish, you would want to salt and or smoke your pork to store it long-term because they don't really have refrigeration, so everything has to be stored at room temperature. Of course, sheep were the primary livestock animal of the Uruk economy. Goats and cattle were also important. And all of these were worth more alive than dead. Of course, you can get milk from all of them and hair. Sheep give you wool and cattle can pull plows. You would cull your young males and old females every once in a while, but they wouldn't be a primary source of meat. Your average rural peasant farmer would be lucky enough to have beef maybe once a year at a temple feast, but by and large, they're not eating fresh meat, especially not from cows. And to look at other products, of course, you could turn dairy into milk, cheese, and clarified butter or ghee. We don't know exactly whether they domesticated ducks or geese yet. They do seem to be domestic by the mid-2000s. So we have no clear evidence of bread ovens in houses. It's possible that some ovens have been misidentified as pottery kilns, but evidence points to open hards instead. So in other words, bread does not seem to have been baked in ovens. It was maybe baked over a fire, flatbread style, or placed in the hot ashes after the fire had died down. Most buildings had a hearth of some kind. In most houses, it was about two feet in diameter, or about 70 centimeters. This was usually a pit dug into the ground, sometimes lined with bricks.
2: Wouldn't that also be a bit of a risk of a fire, then, if you just got all these open fires? I guess the houses probably weren't made of wood, so it's right. all right.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, probably you want to set whatever is inside on fire.
2: Yeah, but then they probably didn't have anywhere near as much furniture as we have nowadays, so you're all right.
1: In Susan Pollock's 2012 article, she said that, quote, cooked foods such as soups, stews, or porridges were closely associated with food prepared and consumed at home, end quote, as opposed to institutional processing for storage. So to take a look at feasting in an institutional context, in 2019, J.K.L. Johnson wrote, quote, If we can reduce Mesopotamian institutional life to a slogan, it would be, Beer codes solidarity, but meat codes hierarchy, End quote. So in late Uruk Temple records, everyone gets grain rations, but only some people get meat rations. In one text, six sheep can be butchered to produce 120 cuts of meat, which would make each individual portion of meat about one kilogram, or 35 ounces. Usually in these texts, the number of dried fish is about twice the number of sheep and goats, This ratio might be linked to a system of temple offerings or a system of individual portions for feasts. The sign used for fish here probably represents a barbell, which can grow up to two meters long and weigh 60 kilograms. This sign is pronounced Suhur in Sumerian, and it refers to not just fish, but split, salted, and dried fish. In other words, fish that have been processed for longer-term storage. So these archaic records have the same ratio and the same numbers as two funeral feasts from a thousand years later, That's a funeral for a member of Ur's royal family from the Third Dynasty period in the 21st century BCE. This doesn't prove that the Uruk texts were used for feasts in the same way. Obviously, a lot changed in that thousand years. But it is notable that they follow the same pattern, given that at the very least, certain aspects of the scribal education were unchanged from the Uruk period.
2: Yeah, it's always really difficult extrapolating. I tried to uh, base a whole essay once off the Justinian legal codes when I was talking about uh, the Roman Empire under Constantine. So it's obviously quite a few years in between those two. um, And I only realized at the end that I was actually looking at the digest. And then I had to retroactively claim it was all an extrapolation that I'd intended to do. So I'm, I'm now always very cautious about that. But I think it is useful when you don't have anything else.
1: Yeah, and that's, I think, useful perspective. Because, you know, even in you know, those couple of centuries that we have a fair amount of documentation for, a lot changed. And here we are talking about mm. a thousand years of Mesopotamian history.
2: Yeah, and it's easy to say for the Roman period. Oh well, of course, a lot changed because we all know about Constantine, we all know about Justinian, and there was a huge amount of change there, obviously. But then we just don't have the same context for the surrounding period right. from this time, which makes everything so difficult.
1: Yeah, and sometimes you are forced to have to you know extrapolate something from you know two thousand BC to what was happening in you know, thirty two hundred BC, like maybe. Eh. Yeah. So the way this works is that if you're a temple scribe preparing for a feast, step one would be to look up your temple's payroll. You would probably have access to a list of everyone's name and title, and each title would correspond to a specific amount of a specific type of food. For example, people with the job title Shita would get one portion of mutton, but people with a lower rank of Uk'in would get one portion of dried fish instead. Step two would be to calculate your totals. So in one text, we have six people titled Shita. Given later Sumerian readings of these signs, they're called Gal, Geshtu, Nunen, En Amar, Nam Kab, and Anshu En. These are probably professional titles, but they might also be personal names. Geshtu refers to a different type of official in other texts. And of course, Geshtu A, the god who had intelligence, was slaughtered in the assembly in episode one. So we don't have the records for the rest of this feast, but we do have another text with these same titles. And then step three would be to check your math. So after going through the payroll, you should have a separate list of titles and how many people have that title. Then you would multiply that by the number of portions that each title is entitled to. And then step four would be to enjoy the feast if you are invited. These six officials are probably upper management, given the meat they're getting. In context, this might be one of those feasts that are meant to cement the relationships between elites and not to obligate regular people to work for the temple. But to look at the kitchens that these feasts would have been prepared in. So most major public buildings during the Uruk period have a hearth. This is also true in the Ayana district. These hearts are generally one to two meters in diameter, so they're very large and probably used to prepare food for lots of people. Compared to houses, institutions are more focused on processing food for storage. So, you know, brewing beer, making butter and cheese, salting meat, and so on. Obviously, it wants to store a huge amount of food for as long as possible, so it makes sense that a lot of its activities are geared towards giving food a longer shelf life. Basically, because of this, now every type of food can be an economy of scale, not just staple crops. So late Uruk cylinder seals depict lots of different types of labor, including weaving, filling silos, and tending animals. But some tasks not depicted at all include cooking, roasting, and baking. And elite feasts are also not depicted. So this might reflect the interests of the temple officials. You know, they're in charge of production, storage, and documentation, basically in charge of enlarging the temple's coffers. The way their dinners are prepared is not of their concern, per se. Similarly, in the archaic text, pottery is described by what it stores, not the properties of the pot itself. And looking at later periods... Leaders often rationalize their power by tying it to agricultural abundance. In the Mesopotamian worldview, the piety of the king brings food, water, and reproduction. So leaders wanted to emphasize the benefit the rule brought to regular people and not to rub their faces in the feasts that they're not invited to. So in some sense, it shouldn't surprise us that they're not constantly depicting themselves having parties that only they're invited to.
2: Sure. That historically hasn't gone down so well. We often get a revolution.
1: (laughs) You got the the big, uh, you know, hairpiece done up with the reed boat on the top. So every public building had an industrial sized kitchen. That would have prepared a large amount of food that was probably central to the function of the institution so dozens and maybe hundreds of people would have been involved in preparing these large feasts but like i said these people are absent in visual art and the activities of cooking are not recorded in detail in these texts these texts might mention the supplies for the meals they might mention the personnel that prepare the meals but unlike other administrative actions they can't actually shine a light on what the cooking process looked like the workforce preparing these feasts probably included temple employees all the way down the hierarchy to slaves which is similar to the modern restaurant and catering industry, where some people are world-famous chefs and some people are trafficked.
2: Right, okay, yeah. So the lowest of the low are kind of the ones who have been probably brought over by force of some kind, whether that's like economic force or um, more physical.
1: Right, and especially, you know, later on we have recipes that'll say, you know, this is how to make this dish, and the name of the dish is, you know, written in community form, but it's not a Sumerian word.
2: That's, yeah, that's so interesting. Okay.
1: So throughout this series, I've been mentioning beveled rim bowls, which are the standard mass-produced pottery style of the Uruk period. Back in episode 15, we looked at joba bowls, which were the undecorated, standardized, mass-produced bowls in northern Mesopotamia. Those were cheaply produced in molds and tempered with chaff, and they may have been used to portion out grain in some form. This was part of a larger trend in the north of increasing institutional authority over labor, agricultural produce, and storage and distribution. So beveled rim which like I said, are the particular type of mass-produced bowl developed in southern Mesopotamia, first appear during the early Uruk, around 3900 BCE, and they become common by the late Uruk. They disappear by around 3000 BCE, except from some places in northern Mesopotamia. They generally have a volume of about one liter. They're often made of local clay, which means they're probably not commodities in and of themselves. And they appear across Mesopotamia, Syria, Iran, and Anatolia, and as far east as Pakistan. The fact that they appear at the same time, in the same sites, and in the same contexts as the spread of Uruk culture probably suggests that they have something to do with each other. But beveled bowls spread farther than other aspects of this Uruk culture. So to look at the way they're made, they're mass-produced in pottery molds. Basically, you put a flat clay pancake on top of a wet cloth, and then you leave it in a mold. You put about a dozen of these into a mold to form their shape. Then you lift out with the cloth and leave it to dry. This design is more or less universal across the Uruk world, although, like I said, they were manufactured locally. Compared to other pottery types, beveled rim bowls are fired at fairly low temperatures, mostly between 500 and 800 degrees Celsius, and almost never more than 900 degrees. So, by 550 degrees Celsius, the process of dehydroxylation is complete. That's removing water from the molecular structure of the clay, causing the sheets of clay to bind to each other. This is the bare minimum to not dissolve when these bowls get wet. So the fact that they're often fired at this bare minimum might suggest that they weren't meant to hold liquid. The pottery produced at this minimum temperature is called biscuit pottery. At this point, the clay particles are sintered or welded together. The pot is durable enough to be handled, but it's still porous enough to absorb water. So it's more similar to the pots you would buy at a home goods store for outdoor gardening than pottery you would use to serve food today. It's worth asking why these weren't made on a wheel. You know, one bowl made on a pottery wheel is faster than making that same bowl by hand. But of course, the wheel needs an experienced potter to work it. Whereas pottery molds just need manual labor. Of course, molds create uniform shapes, which make them easier to stack. Although these bowls are low quality, you can produce a very high quantity of them. And this repetitive manual labor, again, leads to increased creativity for administrators. So once rations are standardized, your workforce is now fungible. In other words, any individual worker can be replaced with a different one. Their skills are not that irreplaceable. And either way, they'll be fed a standard amount of rations. And given that these beveled rim bowls can be mass produced, this frees professional potters up to experiment with more pottery styles. So again, this creativity for skilled artisans comes at the expense of manual laborers. So the exact purpose of these bowls is uncertain. Most likely, they were used to measure out dried, unmilled grains of barley. It's also been suggested that they were used to measure out beer. But in 2010, Jill Goulder suggested that the thick walls might mean that they were intended to be used as bread molds, similar to later bread molds used in Egypt. Generally, we find them stacked where food is made, not where food is eaten. They're found in central locations and not individual homes, which might show that people weren't taking these rations home in these bowls to eat and then leaving them at home. So Goulder suggests that these beveled ribbons might have been a mold for a certain type of high-quality bread that was served to the administrative elite. So as the alluvium was exporting aspects of its elite identity to the rest of the Middle East, this might have included the process of making this particular type of bread. She says, quote, This urban specialist group, unable to grow their own food, might take to a new, distinctive, tasty staple, such as leavened, container-made bread, as part of their differentiating salary, which then became part of their cultural identity, end quote. We can look at the spread of the Greek tradition of the symposium, or symposium, which is a similar elite feasting tradition spread across the Mediterranean via Greek colonization, so that even people from outside a Greek background could participate in this quintessentially Greek tradition of elite feasting. So basically... These bowls might have been preheated, so the thick walls of these bowls would have allowed them to retain more heat. So if they were preheated before the dough was put in, this would cause the dough to rise rapidly, both before and during baking. Emmer wheat bread expands faster than barley bread. And although barley was the most common in the alluvium, emmer was the second most common cereal. And emmer was more common during the Uruk period than it would be during later periods in Mesopotamia. But like I said, the general consensus is that these bowls were used as rations for workers. They were often discarded when they were still intact, so they're essentially disposable. We can think of a red solo cup in the sense that it's used for special occasions and then discarded, not used every day or as a daily dish that you would wash out and reuse. They appear around the same time as the fast pottery wheel, both of which are a way to mass-produce containers for large-scale distribution. In other words, minimizing the investment in terms of time, labor, and materials and maximizing production. In 2012, Susan Pollack says that the contents of the bowls were probably consumed on the spot, which would explain why they're not in people's homes, but all centralized in larger administrative locations. In third millennium texts, Rations are distributed on a monthly basis, whereas these bowls are only the size of a daily ration, about one liter. So Pollock suggests that these bowls might have held beer. Beer is commonly mentioned in archaic texts. These texts don't mention the details of brewing or consumption, but beer is a nutritious beverage. It's more calorically dense than grain. It doesn't require any cooking, so there's no need for fuel, and the archaic sign for ration allocation is often associated with the sign for beer. At Chogomish in Susiana, we see beveled rim bowls laid out in rows, sometimes on shelves, like in a cafeteria. Similarly, we see them discarded in a pit in Susa. If we think of these beveled rim bowls as like cafeteria trays, you know, passed out to workers so they can eat together for a lunch break and then collected at the end of the lunch break so they can keep working. We can think of this as a situation where co-workers would spend time with each other, maybe building up a collective identity. Obviously, this is time that they're not spending with their family. So during this period, we see a shift from communal to individual portions, So in domestic meals, you would probably prepare stew in a big pot and everyone would take as much as they want. Whereas now that people are being fed by institutions, everyone is getting the exact same amount. It's kind of a proactive defense against people squabbling over unfair rations. So basically, for quote-unquote free peasants, during most of the year, you would work on your farm to grow grain for your family, and pay some kind of tax or tribute to a central authority, which would probably be a percentage of your grain, or just a flat amount based on their survey of your land and how much grain they could expect from it, and that temple would stockpile that grain in case of emergency. And during the off-season, it would use that grain to pay workers on large-scale construction projects. So again, a standardized amount of grain paid to workers as daily rations. So if you're hungry, if you're running out of grain, if you just really want to help with a canal or whatever, then you would work. And probably for every day you worked, they would give you a lunch size amount of grain. So of course, people would be put to work building temples and large monumental buildings in the temple complex. They would be put to work maintaining canals and city walls and possibly enlisted in the military. But in general, all of this work would help reify the sense of belonging to a particular community. And generally, building temples would reify the religious ideology that the temple espoused and vice versa. If you saw this big, impressive building, that might lend credence to whatever the priests inside are saying. Of course, all of this repetitive labor and drudgery for the workers building these buildings you know, lends increased charisma and power to the authorities inside. But let's end with music. From the earliest depictions of feasting that we have, there is often someone playing an instrument in that image. And generally, the instrument they're playing is a lute-type instrument, which is more like a guitar than a harp. So you have several strings on the neck and a soundbox on one side, and you can place your finger on the string at specific points on the neck to shorten the speaking length of the string, which can raise the pitch. So the Mesopotamian-style lute might be the origin of all lute-type instruments, including the Arabic oud, the South Asian sitar, the European lute, and the various African string instruments, which combined with the oud and the lute, resulted in the modern guitar and banjo. One text written by King Shulgi of Ur around 2050 BCE makes a claim that he was good at every type of music, which indicates the importance of this type of music to society at the time.
2: So it's important. It's kind of a factor of the education then for the elite.
1: Well, at least Shulgi was unique in that he claimed to be good at a bunch of things that kings didn't normally learn.
2: Right, okay.
1: He may be claiming to be good at things that even scribes didn't normally
2: learn. Yeah, I'd be interested to know who actually was playing these. Whether it was a specialist skill to be a musician, because I assume it would be. Yeah. Um, just because it's quite complex, or whether it's something you know that the scribes are doing, or or traveling, traveling musicians going around. It's very difficult to know. Yeah,
1: I mean, musician is a job title listed on the payroll of temples and palaces. You know, I haven't done that much research into the later historical aspect of it, but my guess is that there are professional musicians just as the temple employs, you know, gardeners and you
2: know, so on. That's really interesting because I enjoy seeing artists uh, start to be represented in history because obviously when uh, when everything's a struggle, there's just no possibility of having artists.
1: Exactly. So one seal from the 2000s BCE has someone playing an instrument with a visible neck, but no soundbox. Someone apparently bought a pre-engraved seal and then wrote in cuneiform, Mr. Ur Ur Singer, above the image of the musician, in another one from the 2000s BCE, we see a neck and a soundbox on the instrument, and what may be tuning pegs on the neck, so very similar to a modern guitar. But to look at one seal from around 3100 BCE, so the very end of the late Urk, we see a visible neck of the instrument, but no sound box. However, a lute-type instrument doesn't necessarily need a soundbox. The tube zither is a well-known type of instrument, where instead of having a soundbox, the sound resonates inside a hollow tube. So essentially, the entire tube is the neck. You pluck it on one end, and the vibrations will resonate inside the hollow tube. These would have been made with the plant donax, which is a reed native to the entire Middle East. In ancient Greece, this is the species of reed used for pipes and flutes, like the aulos and the syrinx. Today, it is also the source of reeds used for woodwinds, both single and double reeds.
2: Oh, we still use the exact same? Yeah. Actually, looking at Arundo, I'm pretty sure I've seen that word in Greek. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they have the same word. Nice. Unless that's just... I
1: know, mean, it makes sense.
2: Yeah, I think we've kept, I think we've got the modern word from the Greek. It looks um, relatively similar. But I didn't have enough uh, specialized musical instrument knowledge when I was learning about that to know it's actually
1: the same word. Oh, I think it's interesting. So this reed tube zither might have been about 60 centimeters long with a two centimeter diameter, so about two feet-ish. The strings could be made of gut, animal hair, or plant fiber, and they'd be easy to attach to the tube with a notch at each end. So, obviously, lots of people are moving to these big cities, probably bringing their own traditions of making lutes and other string instruments. So one way to adapt to all these different styles being brought together in the same place is the introduction of a bridge. So if you think of a violin, the bridge is the wooden part that stands perpendicular to the strings. You can move it along the length of the string to change the speaking length of an open string. Essentially, this allows different instruments to use the same tuning system so you don't have to rebuild an instrument from scratch. In the 2000s, we will see an instrument called the Gish Gudi, which is 50 centimeters long with three strings. So it's around the same size and a similar concept to the modern ukulele. Anyway, that's that. Let's return to the story of Lugulbanda in the mountain cave. Lugulbanda and the army of Unug were going to attack Arata in Iran. But along the way, Lugulbanda fell sick and his fellow soldiers who couldn't care for him left him in a cave and prepared a full funeral feast in case he died. So we return to Lugalbanda in a mountain cave.
0: Then two days passed during which Lugulbanda was ill. To these two days, half a
1: day was <laughs> Need a way to say two and a half days, metrically, over the course of two lines. Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. (laughs) Then two days passed, during which Lugalbanda was ill. To these two days, half a day was added. As Utu turned his glance towards his home, as the animals lifted their heads towards their lairs, at the day's end in the evening cool, his body was as if anointed with oil. But he was not yet free of his sickness. When he lifted his eyes to heaven to Utu, he wept to him as if to his own father. In the mountain cave, he raised to him his fair hands.
1: Utu, I greet you, let me be ill no longer. Hero Ningal's son, I greet you, let me be ill no longer. Utu, you have let me come up into the mountains, in the company of my brothers. In the mountain cave, the most dreadful spot on earth, let me be ill no longer. Here, where there is no mother, there is no father, there is no acquaintance, no one whom I value. My mother is not here to say, alas, my child. My brother is not here to say, alas, my brother. My mother's neighbor who enters our house is not here to weep over me. Which, by the way, I don't know if that's supposed to be a joke, but that, if that is a joke, that's a great one. Uh, that <laughs> like, my close familiar relations, my mother, my father, my brother, that guy who's constantly <laughs> visiting my mom.
0: Yeah, that does stick out quite <laughs> a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean... <laughs> I don't know if there's some sort of cultural, like, relationship with, with thy neighbor. That yeah, I mean, uh, probably there
1: is. Like, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. probably. This is, yeah.
0: And Mr. Jenkinson from across the street, who I have very similar eyes with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Our brow structures are sort of the same. <laughs> He's always bringing me gifts and stuff <laughs> and just saying, like, if only the world was a little different, son. N- <laughs> I never knew what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, what a f- there's trick to have that on a, um, you know, like in this myth about this guy's mm-hmm. near-death
1: experience.
0: Like, yep. oh, he's your hero, but also get this! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, the orator's clearly saying the audience is drifting because nobody's mentioned, like, a fart or sex in, <laughs> like, an hour. <laughs> so it's right. like,
1: if the male and female protective deities were standing by, the deity of neighborliness would say, A man should not perish. A lost dog is bad. A lost man is terrible. On the unknown way, at the edge of the mountains, Utu, is a lost man. A man in an even more terrible situation. Don't make me flow away like water in a violent death. Don't make me eat saltpeter as if it were barley. Don't make me fall like a throwstick somewhere in the desert, unknown to me. Afflicted with a name which excites my brother's scorn. Let me be ill no longer. Afflicted with the derision of my comrades. Let me be ill no longer. Let me not come to an end in the mountains like a weakling. So the sun god Utu hears his prayers. The goddess Inanna goes to help. She is connected with the planet Venus. She's the daughter of Nana Sin, also called Nana Suen, the moon god. There's an astrological layer, astronomical, I guess. There's a star layer to the myths as well. Astronomy or astrology? Well, they're, they're, they're kind of they're both in this case. Both, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: Venus was the Roman version of Aphrodite, right? right, right the right. goddess of, like, love and getting it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Inanna is the goddess of love and getting it on. Yeah. So. And all they, the Romans didn't steal from the Greeks. They stole from the Mesopotamians.
1: No, yeah. And it's like, yeah, when you say Inanna is Venus, you can say, you know, it means both. Inanna was identified with the morning and evening star.
0: And Inanna is Aphrodite. And
1: Inanna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Aphrodite, one of her epithets is the Cyprian goddess because her cult came to Greece via Cyprus from the east. And huh. you know on Cyprus was a cult center to Astarte, who is the Phoenician version of Ishtar, who is the Semitic version of Inanna
0: dang so yeah. they had so then so in cyprus they have this cult of the you said the phoenician version right. of the semitic version of her right and then her cult just shows up there and then you have two rival you know the same and then they all go to greece and they're yep. like yo i have a new olympic god
1: oh it's kind of abstract a woman who likes to have sex can you make it more concrete for me it's that star right there yeah, oh okay okay
0: yeah, yeah, now i'm so now i want to f- that star
1: yeah. <laughs> talk about <laughs> inadequacy <laughs> When it talks about Anana's game being sweet, it's referring to warfare.
0: Utu accepted his tears. He sent down his divine encouragement to him in the mountain cave. She, whose game is sweet. The prostitute who goes out to the inn, who makes the bedchamber delightful. Who is food to the poor man. Inanna, the daughter of su Wind, arose before him like a bull in the land. Her brilliance, like that of Holy Shara. Her stellar brightness illuminated for him the mountain cave. When he lifted his eyes upwards to Inanna, he wept as if before his own father. You know, so describing her as, you know, all things are good, you know, but also like sexy, sexy, sexy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he weeps before her as if before his own father. A little weird for me. <laughs> well,
1: that's some interesting feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
0: know, like, I just imagine, like, you know, like the silhouette of like, you know, like, My cultural and religious understanding of, like, the pinnacle of, like, sexuality. I'm Mm. like, Dad! (laughs) (laughs) In the mountain cave, he raised to her his fair hand.
1: Inanna, if only this were my home, if only this were my city, if only this were Kulaba, the city in which my mother bore me, even if it were to me as the wasteland to a snake, if it were to me as a crack in the ground to a scorpion. May my limbs not perish in the mountains of the cypresses.
0: Inanna accepted his tears. With power of life, she let him go to sleep just like the sleeping Utu. Inanna enveloped him with heart's joy, as if with a woolen garment. Then she went to brick-built Kulaba. So this is
1: not the last we'll hear from Anana in the story.
0: Just gotta tuck him in real quick and then go to Kulaba. Not exactly. Give him a little quick little tuck. The bull that eats up the black soup. The astral holy bull calf came to watch over him. He shines in the heavens like the morning star. He spreads bright light in the night. Suin is greeted as the new moon. Father Nana gives the direction for the rising Utu, the glorious lord whom the crown befits. Suin, the beloved son of Enlil, the god reached the zenith splendidly. His brilliance, like holy Utu, his starry radiance illuminated for him
1: the mountain cave. So here we have a metaphor. In my interpretation, the bowl is a moon, and the black soup is the night sky. And of course, Suin is a moon god, so it's still all about astronomy.
0: That does make sense. Unless uh, Mesopotamian cuisine was significantly worse than that. I mean. like, <laughs> hey, here's your rotten grain soup, bud. It's activated charcoal. <laughs> it's
1: a superfood.
0: <laughs> See, it's, it's really good for absorbing poison in your belly, but the downside is the soup itself is the poison. So I mean, eh. Uh... When Lugalbando raised his eyes to heaven to sue him, he wept to him as if to his own father. In the mountain cave, he raised to him his fair hands. A lot of weeping to his dad. <laughs> yep. My relationship with my dad not correct. <laughs> I, I don't do a lot of, like, weeping, weeping at his him, yeah. feet. Yeah, I don't weep <laughs> at my dad a lot. I don't know. It just seems like this this guy's go-to move. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of reserve that for, you know, very, very emotional family moments, not necessarily just like my go-to response with my dad. (laughs) exactly. Hey, son, I'm just (laughs) calling. Christ, son, I was just calling to see if you wanted to get an oil change.
1: (laughs) King whom one cannot reach in the distant sky. King who loves justice, who hates evil. Suen who loves justice, who hates evil. Justice brings joy justly to your heart. A poplar, a great staff. Forms a scepter for you. You who loosen the bonds of justice, who do not loosen the bonds of evil. If you encounter evil before you, it is dragged away. When your heart becomes angry, you spit your venom at evil, like a snake which drools poison. Another
0: one of those animalistic sort of Mm -hmm. connections to the king. That's kind of cool. Also, I do love this is the propaganda stanza. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. You're good, you hate evil. Uh, hold on, uh, you're, uh, you're good. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> oh, wait, you know who else is good and hates evil? The gods, yeah. all right? So I'm, I want you to think about the guy who's ruling over you and the gods, kind of the same. But I gotta say. <laughs> Match made in heaven, oh! Zuin <laughs> <laughs> accepted his tears and gave him life. Hmm. He conferred on his feet the power to stand. A second time, as the bright bull rising up from the horizon A shield standing on the ground, watched by the assembly. A shield coming out from the treasury, watched by the young men. The youth Utu extended his holy splendor down from heaven. He bestowed them only on holy Lugalbanda in the mountain cave. His good protective god hovered ahead of him. His good protective goddess walked behind him. The god which had smitten him went up and away from him when he raised his eyes heavenward to utu he wept to him as to his own father and the mountain cave he raised to him his
1: fair hand and it's interesting to note that the illness assailing him is described as a god that can go out of and away from him.
0: Yeah, that's the first time they didn't mention it as an illness as a god before.
1: There are these main gods, you know, Enlil and Nana and all those. This
0: is very into some lower level spirits. Right? Yeah,
1: and there's all kinds of you know spirits, household gods, personal gods, family you know, like you know there's gazillions and gazillions of gods yeah. that aren't the you know headliner. A zoo, zoo! Yeah, exactly. Utu, shepherd of the land, father of the black headed. When you go to sleep, the people go to sleep with you. Youth Utu, when you rise, the people rise with you. Utu, without you, no net is stretched out for a bird. No slave is taken away captive. To him who walks alone, you are his brotherly companion. Utu, you are the third of them who travel in pairs. You are the blinkers for him who wears the neck ring. Like a holy Zulumhi garment, your sunshine clothes the poor man and the scoundrel. As well as him who has no clothes, as a garment of white wool. It covers the bodies even of debt slaves. Like rich old men, the old woman praise your sunshine sweetly until their oldest days. Your sunshine is as mighty as oil. Great wild bulls run forward. Praise to you is so very sweet, it reaches up to heaven. Hero, son of Ningal, they laud you as they deserve.
0: There's a lot to unpack with that last stand, though.
1: Last yep, yep, stand, yep.
0: Though. Because so, yeah. so they, 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 do, they do make a distinction between mentioning slaves and debt slaves. Mm-hmm. So we were talking earlier in another podcast about, another episode, what the distinction was. Mm-hmm. But it seems like in this myth there is a distinction. Right. And then two, presumably this myth was going to be told to all of those slaves that are being
1: brought into the city. Well, maybe. It. It's not clear that everyone would have been invited to the performance of these.
0: Gotcha. I don't know. You know remember, you wouldn't be a slave if it wasn't for our god here. Yeah, Yep, yep, yep. This guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy yeah.
1: shines upon the
0: worst day of your life. Yeah. Holy Banda came out from the mountain cave.